Welcome to the podcast, A Colored Girl Speaks, meditations on race and other magical things, a collection of personal essays on race, culture, and politics through the prism of identity, memory, and history, an intimate and often painful commentary on race in America and the way forward. Essays are by Andrea Hunter and are narrated by Tierra Moore. So, at last, this colored girl speaks. Episode 11, Moonlight and Liberty. Before the high crime lights invaded my southern Florida town and my bedroom window, I could see the night, and I watched the darkness after Johnny Carson, the anthem and spiritual message when television went off. I was still what my mother called a night baby, and I looked and thought of spirits and what was unseen. Moonlight has a way of showing the beauty of things made harsh by day, and alongside shadows reveal what the stark light obscures, and the colored black world in which I grew up and would move away from, came to exist in that place, a place of lighted darkness. I came of age in the years after what historian C. Van Woodward called the Second Reconstruction, which included civil rights legislative achievements, desegregation, and cultural shifts in race relations. I would enjoy its fruits, and there would not be the nadir that followed the first reconstruction. But there was a mitigated darkness. When I first heard of the movie Moonlight and its subject and place, I knew the filmmaker and screenwriter, Barry Jenkins, understood the ironies of black lives as we existed between the promise delivered, even if imperfectly, and its failure. Deep struggles remained, and the blood of King could not fully deliver us. I have not seen Moonlight because I do not want to see the ravages of crack cocaine and what I saw unfold in real time, nor what I could not see from the distant ivied stone walls of Cornell a universe apart from where I began, or to think of my home place where so much crumbled in my absent safety. I do not want to see the concrete rectangle apartment buildings, nor the parks, or the faces familiar to me, or the darkened shine of children played out in the sun. Nor do I want to remember what once was Overton, the black Miami, and the Art Deco white buildings, where I was attended by a colored dentist. I see his brown hands and the soft, green, sunlit room with the medicinal air. It reminds me the future had other endings, ones with less suffering. I-95 by design, had already split the economic heart 
of the thriving colored town, established a more than a half a century earlier. But we still traveled there to attend colored doctors and dentists, as we had to. By the time we arrived in Liberty, Overton was a shell of itself. And just as the land left us, black souls would be taken too. I recently read a blog of a young black woman, her argument, black folks have a victim mentality and we need to get ourselves together and do something, followed by an amen chorus of comments. I do not read many blogs because it is not the same as talking to me. I am old in that way. And I cannot say to her what would have been said to me if I talked about what I did not know. I am most bothered by this because she is black and young and knows no better that what is seen is rarely all there is to see. And she does not know what happened between then and now. I had a dear friend who finished high school a year or so before I. I last saw her at an outdoor flea market as my mother and I shopped in the August sun for suitcases to take with me my sophomore year of college. She had struggled, scrapped to make a life for herself and her young son. She was a survivor, fueled by aspiration. We had not seen each other much, my friend and I, after I had gone to Spelman, and I asked how she had been. I have a bad skin rash, psoriasis, I think. Nothing helps, she answered, gesturing towards her arm and scalp covered by a silk scarf. By October, she was dead with a pandemic disease that had no name. The authorities came and went, saying nothing more than, wash everything down with bleach. It was 1979. She would not be the only friend who would succumb to a disease no one understood. My junior high bandmate and the junior usher from my church, who would be her husband, died one after the other, leaving their children behind. I saw friends and cousins' lives upended by crack cocaine, and those who once were family men, deeply loved by their children, were swept up too, into the drug trade. Incarceration spread like wildfire with the war on drugs, increasing by almost 800% between 1980 and 2013. No one made any sense as they lived what once would have been unthinkable even to them. The street my Aunt Fanny lived a community elder and a keeper of memories, was transformed into a drug haven, only periodically policed. More, the police watched to ensure its containment rather than to eradicate it. But nothing could. I slid in and out of this world, traveling 
between the Ivy League and here. Still my home, but it was being overtaken by something that was not us. Crack cocaine ate away at bodies and consumed souls. It did not matter how people were raised, nor the presence of God in heaven, in which they had always believed, or whom they loved, or who loved them. There was more money to be made than anyone had ever seen, and more than mothers and fathers had done in the fields, or in service all their lives, and more than daddies who had gotten a leg up now laid off, and who were scrapping by just the same as if liberty had never come. Bedroom walls became banks, and the money, like monopoly currency, was spent on cars, turf, gold chains, women, and full coach caskets in the ultimate send-off, but it never left the board. There was no get-out-of-jail-free card or community chest, and the money changed nothing and everything that mattered. Scarface, the hero of hedonism, lined the walls of gangsters, rappers, and wannabe gangster rappers, while real-life heroes, like my father, tried to save brothers with wisdom, football, and God from the demons where death of all kinds awaited. Whatever we had become, this is not who we were. I knew them before all this happened. We sat in Sunday school together and on school buses and talked of nothing, danced and sang the latest song out. I knew their mothers and grandmothers and they knew mine. I would know their babies and when they were born and what devoured them, as far anyone knew, was not of this earth. It was supposed to be different than this. Black folk expected more from this time. But it was not to be as we dreamt. Not for all of us. Jim Crow was supposed to be dead. And so we were as likely to blame each other and ourselves as we were the man for dreams unfulfilled. We believed King's dream was the ticket to the American dream, and it was not victimhood that was wanted, or studied on, or subscribed to, but rather, we believed a piece of the pie, finally, was to be ours too. Just as the doors opened wider than ever before, there was less to be had behind them. The stagflation of the 70s suffocated the economy. Creeping post-industrialization led to levels of joblessness among black men not seen since the Great Depression. And those that could sought refuge in the white spaces long denied us. Black economic centers neutered as the world drove through them continued with little or no municipal investment. In time, urban renewal, which James Baldwin 
equipped with Negro removal in the next millennia would turn what was once black to affluent and white until even D.C., Chocolate City, had become Latte City. In my small town, black folks left the fields and farms where they so long had toiled, but there was no place to go, and they were quickly replaced by immigrant farm labor, and there was no going back, and no one wanted to. And all that we had grieved, all that was held inside, and wept and shouted over, and all that we had prayed to God to deliver us from, as we sat on the stoop for rest, stood poised to gobble us up. In 1985, the second presidential term of Ronald Reagan, there was the first national reporting about a cheap, highly addictive drug called crack that was sweeping through inner-city neighborhoods. And what was to come, none of us imagined. The year that followed, the anti-drug addict bill appropriated $1.7 billion to fight the drug trade. $90 million was to build new prisons to accommodate the mandatory sentencing established for drug offenses. The first step in a long walk toward mass incarceration. It would destroy our families and gut communities and my home place contorted under its weight. But this was a sacrifice our nation was willing to make, shielding itself from the depths of black suffering with the shrug of contempt for distressed rule largely white towns and counties like Somerset County, Maryland, Carnes County, Texas, and Sayre, Oklahoma, prisons became an economic engine. Feasting on the freedom of black and brown bodies, they were made fat with new prosperity, and the American dream was revived. The incarcerated were captured trans-state, counted as residents by many local and state governments, though less than three-fifths a person, without a vote, uncitizens. Yet, they generated political power in prison-based gerrymandering. As prisons emptied, President Obama sought to address mass incarceration and close for-profit private prisons, and we awoke from the long night. But prison towns still clamored in their hunger, and under the Trump administration, Attorney General John Sessions appeased, calling for a return to uniform punishments, including mandatory minimum sentences, and instructed prosecutors to pursue the harshest possible charges. Through all of this, black churches remained, community activities were planned, and teachers, pastors, and community leaders saved what they could. We had come from a hard-working people. They remained within us, but we were stretched 
and torn. It was as if there was a swirl of happenings all at once, like the slow-motion chaos of a multi-vehicle crash, with each action creating a chain of others, expanding the debris outward, each consequence dire than the last. With injury, some would fall, and others saved by equal serendipity. When all came to rest, I wondered how all this came to be. As I travel homeward, the neon-lit night skyline of Miami has a beauty to it, with skyscrapers reaching towards the heavens, etched in blue, purple, and green. It glistens with the crystals of the cocaine crack drug trade. And our dead are there too, unseen. This is what happened between now and then. And to that young woman who blogs, as her elder, I would say, these are the things of hope and despair and of moonlight. This brings us to the end of this episode of A Colored Girl Speaks, Meditations on Race and Other Magical Things. Your time, the listen, and your engagement are most appreciated. To connect with the essayists and a broader community of listeners, please visit the website andreahunter.com or connect with us on Twitter, A Colored Girl Speaks, at I am Andrea Hunter. And subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Until we gather again, share your stories and meditations. And ask for those stories not yet given. Mm-hmm.